the first time I heard that, my whole world just went to like tunnel vision. Mm. I'm like, oh shit, like this is getting real. And then I remember immediately like snapping out of it and going, oh, I know what to do. Like mm. I've been <laughs> trained for this. We've rehearsed this a million times. Okay, so um, what are my responsibilities if we have a troops in contact as the wingman? And this is something that we practice and breathe. Okay, I need to provide, you know, viz, like visual lookout for my flight lead, calm if I see anything, additional firepower if needed. So you just immediately snap back to what you've been trained to do and you start just prioritize and execute all the required tasks. What's up, my friend, and welcome to the Dango Show. I'm your host, Dango, coach to high-performing entrepreneurs and professionals. And what we do at the Dango Show is tease out the best practices of the highest-performing entrepreneurs in the world while sharing cutting-edge, evidence-based information to help you become healthier and wealthier. So if that's what you're into, you're in the right place. Click that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so every time one of my episodes goes live, you'll be the first to know. Hey, what's up? Welcome to the podcast. And in today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing my friend, Dale Stark. And Dale is a U.S. Air Force pilot. He was he was actually driving, not driving, but he was flying the A-10 Warthogs uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, he's been with the military for 20 years. And in this particular conversation, um, I'm coming into it from a civilian standpoint. So if there's any vets that are listening to this, oh, we do go through uh, some kind of like definitions of the things that he talks about because military speak is a lot different than civilian speak. But we do get into the mindset that he had to take in into becoming a U.S. Air Force pilot. If there's nothing that you, if there's anything that you should know about joining the U.S. Air Force, especially as a pilot, is that the standards are at the top of the top. So he tells us exactly how he was able to make it happen when he was uh, literally a almost like a high school dropout, uh, not doing well in school uh, to becoming an actual pilot for the Air Force. And then we get into his evolution into uh, becoming a cattle rancher, into owning his own ranch, taking care of cows. I call him the gardener who's actually a samurai, or maybe I'm getting that analogy wrong, but he is literally uh, someone who has uh, who has been in war, but has decided to become a cattle rancher, and I asked him all about his journey into becoming that, and also what his uh, opinions are on uh, the U.S. military complex, uh, the government, <laughs> and you may be very surprised to hear what he has to say. So, uh, love the interview I did with Dale. Actually, Dale and I we've known each other on Twitter since like 2020. Uh, we've seen each other grow. Uh, we've been interacting with each other online that this was uh, kind of like a full circle moment where we finally got to speak to each other uh, in person. So very excited to bring you this interview. This is Dale Stark and hope you enjoy it. Hey, what's up, Dale? Nice to have you on the podcast. Uh, and uh, one of the things uh, that has connected us uh, together has been uh, us posting on on X. It's actually, it used to be called Twitter, uh, now X. And, um, and it's very interesting from your perspective, uh, when I think about you posting to X, because I don't necessarily see a lot of veterans, 
uh, really going out there and putting themselves out there. Uh, you see a couple of them, which I'll, I'll be asking you about a little bit later on. But but yes, it's uh, you don't really see a lot of uh, veterans really gaining the type of response and the popularity that they are getting uh, when they do post. One of the things I wanted to ask you is, so for every, for the context that for everyone to know is that you are a U.S. Air Force pilot, retired right now. Uh, what What was your trajectory towards becoming a pilot in the first place? And can you take us through that journey? Oh, uh, yeah. So, um it was a it was an interesting journey. Um, so if you were to kind of go back to my my childhood, probably very few people would have expected that I became a I would become an Air Force pilot. Um, so I was not like a great student. Uh, we moved around a ton. I think I think we lived in uh, like eighteen different houses by the time I was eighteen years old. So was your dad in the military as well? Uh, no, he was um, a rancher, a saddle okay. maker a logger, you know, he, he just kind of came up in an era where you did what you had to do. You took a job, um, wherever it was, it may be a seasonal job and, uh, just got the job done. So, um, so throughout that process, you know, I would sometimes move, um, you know, from one school to the next, no continuity, um, not a great student. And so, uh, probably the last person anyone would expect that would become uh, a pilot in the Air Force. So fast forward to uh, me being about 19 years old. So uh, I had graduated high school. I was going to a local community college. Um, I was trying to work. I was trying to be on the wrestling team. And uh, it just was not working for me. So, you know, I'm like couch surfing at friends' houses, um, uh, just kind of living hand to mouth. Uh, so a lot of nights I just park my little 79 Volvo uh, station wagon at the beach, you know, uh, camp out in the back and um, just got to the point where it was like, like, this is not working. I'm getting terrible grades. Uh, I'm not performing at the level I was hoping to on the wrestling mats. And I just started looking for uh, different kind of alternative paths. So um, went down, talked to the recruiters, I talked to Marines, Army and Air Force and um, at that time, uh, I was uh, really thinking about the Marines. I thought, you know, the few, the proud, those guys are, are badasses. That's something I might want to do. Um, but on the flip side, I wanted to do something practical at that time. So I was looking like, well, um, I hate being poor like I am now. So maybe <laughs> if I like acquire this, this technical skill, I could, you know, do my four years and then uh parlay that into a career. So, you know, in, in the civilian world. So uh, I enlisted uh, to do aircraft maintenance and I was planning on just doing that for four years and then moving on with my life. Uh, had no intention of, of staying in 22 years is what I ultimately did. So uh, I enlisted, went through basic training and uh, it just, it, it just was like a good fit. You know, um, I didn't feel like I was starting out at a disadvantage like everyone was on the same plane foot because uh, when, you know, once you start out, no one cares where you came from. No mm -hmm. one cares what your grades were in high school, what your background was. Uh, I was really fit because I was a wrestler. So I did great on all the, the PT stuff. Um, and uh, so I just kind of went on uh, with my career 
And then I was uh, starting to learn that, you know, the harder you worked, the more disciplined you were, um, all of these opportunities were available to you. So I had been in about a year and I was a uh, C-17 crew chief, so a mechanic on a big cargo plane out in South Carolina. Hmm. And uh, I started talking to pilots and um, just meeting a lot of different people and learning the path it took to get from like where I was and, uh, and then this opportunity. So from there, uh, it just, it became something that was possibly, uh, real for me. So this is, this is like, oh, wow. Like I'm just, I'm just this, you know, kid from mainly small towns, terrible grades. And, um, and then here's this path to be a pilot. Why did you want to become a pilot in the first place? I know that you're doing like aircraft maintenance. So what made you look at pilots and be like, yo, I want to do that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So um, I don't know. I just like there were these situations where you'd see these guys like, um, um, you know, they got the flight suits on. They got the yeah. aviator glasses. Uh, <laughs> like you know, when I'm going, yeah, I'm going through training and uh I'm like, I'm, I'm watching these guys flying T-38s and I'm, I'm down there working as a mechanic and uh, I'm looking at them going like, that is so badass. I want to do that. <laughs> like, I don't want to be stuck on the ground. You know, I want to, I want to be a doer. Uh, yeah. How can I make this happen? Did they get all the girls too as well? Like, Oh yeah, man. <laughs> like I, I, I remember we went to this barbecue and uh, like, I'm just this, you know, it, in my mind, I'm, I'm just like, I'm this loser. Like I'm this nobody. And I get invited to this, uh, this weekend barbecue and it's at this grass strip and, uh, I'll never forget it. This guy, uh, he, he's a pilot and, uh, he's like a captain. I think he's an instructor and, uh, he flies in on his own, like private little, it's like this, it's a pit special. So it's this little, uh, tandem cockpit biplane with this big, uh, big prop. It's loud. It's, it's, uh, it's just a badass little airplane. Yeah. And like, and like, he's like doing all these aerobatic maneuvers over the field, <laughs> comes in and, and lands and, uh, he hops out and he's got this, like this, this beautiful girl in the back and they come out and I'm like, I'm, I'm like looking at this guy, like he's like, he like flew in from the heavens, you know, like how, like how on earth did he pull this off? And, uh, so, you know, I just started talking to these guys and I realized it's like, so, so the, the military is very like task oriented. So, you know, on the, on this, in the civilian sector, like as an entrepreneur, anything like that, nobody is going to tell you exactly what to do. So mm. you have to kind of like figure, figure that out all on your own. And, um, you know, that can be scary for, you know, a 19 year old kid who doesn't know what they want to do. Uh, and then all of a sudden I find myself in the air force and I'm going, okay, if you want to be uh, an air force pilot, here's what you have to do. You have to get a four year degree. Okay. You have to meet these like physical fitness standards. You have to take this aptitude test. Um, you have your like commander's ranking, which has uh, a weight to your score. Um, if you have a certain amount of flight hours that can up your score. So I start like breaking down all the little pieces, the components of what it takes to, achieve that goal. And I start going, okay, um, like I could do this, you know, I start taking classes and 
uh, now that I have this goal, this this uh, vision in my mind of, of what I want to be, what I want to achieve, well, I went from um, terrible grades, barely graduating high school, um, to now I'm getting straight A's. And the only difference is, is now I'm motivated and interested. And it's like, okay, you know, I, I learned the game of school. So I like... I, I always thought I just was not academically uh, gifted. I wasn't that smart. You know, I didn't have school smarts. Mm. And then it's like, oh, it's not. Um, school has nothing to do with your intelligence or aptitude. I mean, maybe at a certain level of like high level, you know, engineering or physics, it does. But just mm. basic, you know, your basic liberal arts education. Uh, you know, school is kind of a game. So what you need to do is you need to learn what the person in front of of the classroom wants you to say and wants you to write. Mm -hmm. And you do that and then you get an A. And you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, wow, this is... So now I'm playing the game of school to achieve this larger goal. And and I found that I was able to do that. So so anyhow, I I worked on my physical fitness. I worked on my um, uh, work doing a great job being a mechanic. So I have the commander's recommendation uh, and then I start taking classes and then the more classes I take, uh, the better grades I get, the further that pushes back the, uh, the bad grades mm. I had in high school and in community college. And, um, I start seeing that this is an achievable goal and it then basically just kept, kept marching forward towards that goal. Yeah. And, um, from one again, from you, it's like, it's almost like you had zero purpose, uh, in your life, uh, before joining the army. And then, um, once you saw something that you actually wanted to do, which was, uh, becoming a pilot, then it's, it, it, you do what I call this. It, it's basically taking a vision and making it reality. It's like the outcome is to become a pilot, but then here are all the things that you need to do in order to make it happen. And then the more that you knock those things down, you more, that, the more that you realize that the, that the vision of what you want is achievable, uh, that, that really it is realistic for you as long as you do those things. And that is something I realized about school in general, especially for me, I was a horrible student, uh, dropped out of high school, all that kind of stuff. I couldn't even get through high school because it was just horrible for me. I just hated it. But then once you become interested in something, that's when school changes for you. That's when, that's when you have school and you're doing it for a purpose. And I think for maybe you and I, I'm, I think I'm on the ADHD spectrum for sure. Uh, I haven't got diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure that I'm somewhere there. It's more of a fact of doing something that you feel like you believe in uh, rather than kind of like getting, having to learn things just because you need to get a grade. And then after that, then you have to just uh, kind of like play the game to get to where you need to go from there. So that's what's like turning out to be. It's like you you know what you want, then you go about creating the reality of it through the actual plans to to get to what you want. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, a hundred percent. And um, what's really interesting too is the more progress uh, you make towards that goal, the way it starts kind of reshaping the way people see you and the way you see yourself. So um, as a younger younger guy, you know, teenager. Uh, I saw myself as, um, you know, kind of a kind of a screw up, um, you know, no no kind of direction, just like you alluded to. 
And then um, you take me out of that environment and you put me in this new environment. And now, uh, you know, people are asking me for help on projects in school and that, oh, you're so uh, you're so smart. You get straight A's. And it's like, I'm like, if you only knew uh, how I was even five years before, they would have been shocked. Isn't it funny, like how just like having how people's perceptions of you can change almost like overnight when you actually have something that you are doing that you believe in and you really aren't doing it because you're like, I want people to think of me as smart. I want people or whatever. It's like, no, I just, I'm just doing what I'm interested in. And I have this goal that I want to achieve. And then I'm actually starting to, to see it happen in my own life. And then the same people, I don't know if this was in your case, but it was in my case where it's like the same people who said that, Oh shit, I'm worried about this guy. I don't know if he's going to make it. Um, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm very, I, actually I'm talking about my, my parents' words. They were like super worried about me. And then, and then once I started to find fitness, I was just like, I'm going balls to the walls with this thing. There's like not, there's nothing that's going to fucking stop me. Uh, and then for, and then afterwards, the same people who are telling you that they were worried about you, that they, that they thought that you were going to amount to, no, to nothing. They're the same ones coming to you for advice. They're the same ones coming saying like, yo, I knew Dale way back then. Like, you know, he, he was always like this. He was, he was always like driven, but, but it wasn't always necessarily that case. Um, when, when you were actually going through and becoming a pilot, uh, what exactly was that journey like? Because I know that you're just like knocking down these things. You're, you're on the way to getting to the goal that you set for yourself, but you had to struggle with something as a result of actually achieving that goal. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. So, um, big kind of an, an issue I had was once I set out on this path, um, I started believing that anything less than like total victory was a complete failure. So uh, I like um, early in my uh, my mechanic school, um, one of my instructors was an A10, um, an A10 crew chief. And he told us, you know, he's a Gulf War vet. So he's just told us all these stories about the A10 and uh, about the pilots that flew it and what it was like. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. And I considered anything other than that, like not even worth like doing. Um, you know, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be engaged in that way. So, um, it, but how it works in the military is it's you're subject to the needs of the service. So, uh, you know, you say you start out in pilot training with 33 people. Well, of those 33, only six are going to get tracked to, they call it fighter bomber track. So like the tactical track. And then the rest are going to go off to be like heavy pilots and helicopter pilots and things like that, which what I understand now is a very cool career, very fulfilling. Most everybody, no matter what they end up flying, ends up really enjoying it. Uh, but, you know, young 21 year old me didn't realize that. So I put so much uh, undue pressure on myself um, that uh, I guess it, I guess it worked out. But mm. uh, it was like, I mean, I look back at my my pilot training experience, especially when I got um, to the T-38, which is like the advanced fighter track. And um, it might be one of the most stressful periods of my entire life. So, mm. um, I mean, I would just live, eat, breathe, sleep, 
um, nothing but like every bit of my being towards achieving that goal. And there's things that are, that are, uh, out of your hands. So, so, you know, I, I got to T38 track. So we went from 33 people to, I made it to the top six. So now I'm a part of this six people. And of those six, maybe like three or four will end up in fighter aircraft. And the other three will like stay as instructors. Uh, they call it, they call it faping first assignment instructor pilot, or they'll get go to a bomber. So now I'm competing with these six guys who were, you know, top, their engineers, top of their class at the Air Force Academy. Hmm. These guys are, you know, like quarterback in the Air Force Academy football team. You're hmm. just like, like, where do they find these people? They're, they're like incredible. <laughs> and uh, I'm just this, you know, kid from uh, small town America with really no formal education, very little formal education with all the moving and everything. And I felt that if I didn't get this like top spot, the only way you can get hundred percent, get what you want is if you graduate first in your class. Yeah. And, uh, I did not do that. So, hmm. so out of that six, uh, I start off in T38s and have like a terrible check ride. So everything is scored. Like everything you do is scored. So you can be doing fine and you can fail three flights in a row and you're no longer a pilot. And I, I saw this happen with my own eyes. Um, or you can have a bad day on an important ride and, uh, okay, now you're out of the running to be a fighter pilot. And you're just like in everything you worked for, uh, in your mind is just, is just gone, you know? Mm. So, uh, so I had a terrible check ride and I, it bumped me to basically the bottom of my class at that point. So I'm starting the very beginning of this process at like a deficit. Hmm. And so I just, I felt, um, you know, they say in flying, like you have to have a short memory. You, you know, you can't sit there and dwell on something that just happened to you. And if you do, it's going to be the snowball effect. So you're going to, yeah. you're going to start compounding errors. Um, so anyhow, I just try to put that behind me. I try to not worry about things I could not control. Hmm. And I just like, it was, it was just a grind all the way through. And still by the end, I thought that I was not going to get a fighter and, um, you know, fighter attack, if you will. And we get to the very end of pilot training. I'm still kind of unsure of where it's all going to shake out. And, um, and then ultimately, uh, I got what I wanted. I got Mm. the A-10 and, Mm. um, I like, I almost just broke down out of just, just sheer relief. Uh, cause it's something I wanted so bad. Yeah. And then what happened, uh, after you got it? Cause I know that it's like when you work so hard to achieve one thing in your life and then you finally get it there, there comes that point of like, Oh, now I got to do this. <laughs> yeah. now, now this has become a reality. Now I actually like the, the outcome has ended, but another mountain has kind of like perked up so so how did it feel to achieve it to become a pilot in the first place for the a10 and then uh and then what exactly was your mindset going into it uh knowing that you you got what you wanted yeah it was awesome like um i guess the biggest shift in mindset i had to have was i go from the the end of this process that i just poured everything i had into and i was like i was physically and emotionally exhausted like yeah. I remember like the day I, I 
tracked my A-10 and then graduated pilot training and, and got my wings, I just slept. Like I, I remember mm. sleeping like 12, <laughs> 14 hours a night, like, like for like a few days. And it was mm. like, I just didn't know how to relax. And then that weight was off my <laughs> shoulders, you know, weight I put on myself. Like, uh, yeah. you know, it's funny. I remember talking to my flight commander and he's like, he's like, he goes, you were undeniable. Like, he's like, you, you, mm. you had, like, we had to get you what you wanted because, um, because you earned it. And yeah. can I, can I ask like, you, can I ask you like, what do you feel were the, were the actions or the, the kind of like mental concepts that you took to becoming undeniable? Uh, cause for a lot of people, it's like, they, they, kind of like get a setback and they're like, all oh, right, well, maybe this goal ain't for me, you know? Uh, what what were the things that you were telling yourself when you were going through that struggle and then uh, ultimately uh, becoming a pilot and, and becoming that undeniable Dale Stark? So I would say like, so I've had a lot of people come to me for advice and try to do the same thing I did. Yeah. And I tell them exactly what I did. And then most of them don't do it. Mm. And it's... Um, and, and some of them have, I, I, but the vast majority aren't willing uh, to do the work. So um, not, not to sound kind of crazy or insane, but, um, but I wanted to achieve that goal so bad, I probably would have sacrificed anything hmm. like up into uh, including my own life to achieve hmm. that goal. Like, were, were, I, you with your, were you with your wife back then before becoming a pilot or... Um, I've known my, my wife for forever. Like, you know, we yeah. were in third grade together, um, mm. and we've stayed in touch, uh, off and on, you know, uh, as I moved around, but at that time I was unmarried. Okay. And so it was just, oh, yeah, I would have been, <laughs> I could not have managed a family uh, <laughs> yeah. at all, but yeah, yeah, it's just, you have to want it so bad that you're willing to pay the price mm. for, to achieve that goal. And if that, mm. so if you're like, it's funny. I, I had friends in pilot training that were like, just like kind of like the, that guy I was telling you about, uh, you know, they're like star athletes, number one engineer in their class. Mm. And, uh, and they can do it with ease. You know, mm. they're like, they just cruise, they go to the classes, they have work-life balance and they're, just, and they'll, they'll be even like better than I was. Uh, I'm not that guy. I had to obsess about it uh, 24 seven to be like average amongst these amazing people. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So you, if you want it, you, um, you have to be willing to invest every ounce of yourself into achieving that goal. And, you know, I would not recommend that for everybody. Like Mm -hmm. it is unhealthy. You have to, (laughs) it was, it was an obsession, you know? And so, um, you know, it, but if you do want to achieve that goal, whatever it may be, I believe you can do anything. It's just a matter, are you willing to pay that price? Yeah, for sure. It's like, it is uh, more so about like what you're willing to struggle for rather than, you know, what you're not willing to struggle for. Because uh, if we think of life as maybe like giving you uh, a sense of pain, like life is a struggle, so to speak, and you're always going to have to sustain some type of struggle. I mean, why not do it towards a goal that you are, that you actually have as the most important thing in your life, as opposed to like what most people do is they struggle with laziness, they struggle with sloth, they struggle with gluttony, uh, they struggle with, uh, with, with pretty much things that are kind of like under their control, most likely because they don't have like their brains pointed in the direction that they want. 
And okay, so you become a pilot. This is like the most exciting part for me because I'm just like, oh, like what do pilots do? Like, <laughs> do they go out and just start like bombing, you know, people getting an assignment and like, all right, go bomb this person. <laughs> this is my ignorant take. I'm yeah. not in the military. Uh, so, so what is pilot life like for you? And if you can take us through some of like the really exciting missions that you've done in the past, if you can, if it's not confidential. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so being an A-10 pilot, it, it, to me, is the, the greatest job in the world. So uh, <laughs> what I learned is when I finished pilot training and I took that big sigh of relief and that I made it, you know, I really, I didn't know anything. Like I was barely capable to like get in the door and start at the very bottom again, you know? So, so you take all that work, you bank it away and you realize <laughs> that like flying the airplane, like, yeah, everyone's expected to fly the airplane perfectly at all times. <laughs> and now not only are you managing your airplane and all your systems, you're managing, you know, wingmen, mm. uh, other aircraft tankers, uh, for, for air to air refueling, like all mm. these different things that go into, to, uh, flying the A-10. So, Anyhow, I get through all my A-10 training and I go out to uh, the 355th Fighter Squadron in Alaska and they are already deployed. So they're they're in Afghanistan. So the way it worked for me is I finished my last grade sheet sortie in the A-10 and then my first non-grade sheet sortie was uh, in combat in Afghanistan. And um, thankfully... uh, Sorry, what's sortie? I'm, oh, sorry, I've, I've heard sorry. it in military speak, but I've never like I've never been like okay. Well, I know I kind of just like gloss over. But what is a sortie? Yeah, a sortie is just a uh, it's just a flight. So okay, okay, okay one gotcha. take off and landing. That's okay. the sortie for the day. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, no, that's good. I need to uh, to get good at describing that sort of thing. So yeah, so so every flight I'd ever had. So all those years, like after. The flight, you get a debrief from your instructor, and then they write you out a grade sheet. And basically, the, they don't have time to tell you everything you did good because that's just assume that you're good. Mm. They just tell you everything that you messed up, and so <laughs> you can fix that stuff. So it just you're just constantly getting beat down. So the first so, the first flight I ever had where I wasn't getting critiqued to the nth degree was actually in you know in a in a uh, combat environment. Uh, the one thing I loved about flying the A-10 is um, uh, like morally, uh, like ethically, I never had to have an issue with um, with the actions flying that airplane because mm. it's designed as like a defensive platform. So it is. Um, mm. So what you do in the A-10 is you do it's, it's called close air support. So you're working with friendly forces on the ground. Uh, they get in some sort of firefight and uh, get in trouble and they get on, you know, so, so picture this, you know, you're an 18 year old out there, you're on the ground, you're in the desert, uh, you got like a rifle and a radio and your buddies with you and you're in this, um, this God awful situation and you might even be taking casualties and you get on the radio and you call for help and then the A-10s show up. And so, uh, what the A-10 does is support those guys on the ground. So it may be, yeah, so like it it may be just your presence. So you may like come in and they call it like a show force. So you come in and fly really low altitude, maybe spit out some flares so you become visible like these big, hot, you know, um, fiery things. 
yeah so you're just like hey we're here like uh you might want to break contact and uh and disengage and if you uh if you have to you know you might come around and put rounds on on target you might have to put you know whatever uh whatever is required to mm-hmm. save those guys from from harm's way mm-hmm. and when we talk about like whatever is required like we're we're talking about like guns you know bombs missiles things of that nature right yeah exactly so i mean yeah. you're you're it's 30 millimeter uh actually i've got one right here I can yeah show me show, show the show the people <laughs> We, we we had a conversation about this before the podcast. I'm spitting into the camera right now. Where it's like, does the size of the bullet uh, reflect the the manhood of uh, of, of the pilot or the person? Uh, you know, but but that was just that was just a little joshing That's so around. Funny. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's 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 serious business, man. Like, yeah. you're putting ordnance down in close proximity to friendly forces. So, and on the battlefield, nothing is static. Nothing is staying in one place. So, yeah. you know, you've got targets, threats, friendlies. You've got mm-hmm. artillery coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got tons of aircraft in the stack, perhaps. And you have to orchestrate this, like, symphony of destruction and yeah. make sure that, that your guys are safe and you provide them the fires they need to, to continue being safe. Who's who's orchestrating it? Are you the one orchestrating? I mean, you're when I think of an orchestra, it's like it's a symphony. You're, you're probably playing like the cello or something like that. Yeah. But is there like a composer that's like a tens go here, yada yada yada? Yeah. So um, you have like this entire like command and control system that basically tells you where to go and who to mm-hmm. talk to and what their mm-hmm. call sign is. Um, but once you get in that small like tactical environment. Uh, you work with a ground controller, which is called like a, a JTAC, a Joint Terminal Attack Controller. And then um, you have a, a guy in the air, which is what the A-10 does, uh, which may be like FAC-A qualified, which is a forward air controller. Hmm. Um, and so you are working with the ground party. And uh, as an A-10 pilot, um, kind of, as, as I was alluding to earlier, you're not just responsible for flying your airplane. That's the easy mm-hmm. part. You mm-hmm. have to be able to fly um, the airplane with, you know, half your brain tied behind your back and all of your mental energy is going towards what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can keep, so they call it battle tracking. So you can keep keep track of this. So yeah, the A-10 pilot, uh, AC-130s can also do it. There's certain, certain um qualifications that you can have in these tactical platforms uh which allow you to control the air picture so the the deconflicting so you're not running into each other you're not putting ordnance through other people's altitude blocks um so yeah it's just all part of this this tactical game and what was uh what was your first mission like going into battle because uh, I can imagine, like you, you you've been wanting to be a pilot. You're like, all right, this is like what I'm what I've been uh, trained to do. But I'm 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 pretty sure, like going into your first battle, you're like, I yeah. would be like, what the heck is going on over here? Like, yeah. Oh, I, I I remember that like it was yesterday. So a lot of a lot of missions you go out on, um, nothing particularly exciting happens. Like yeah. you might um, your mission might just be to go out and provide uh, armed overwatch for a convoy moving, uh, you know, whatever route. So 
You might go brief with the convoy commander. You might not. You go out there and you just provide overwatch. You fly over the convoy if you need to, you know, uh, as the tactics dictate for the situation. And then they get to their location and nothing happened. And that's what you want. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what you're hoping for. You want the whole mission, the whole purpose, you know, the discussion of should we be there in the first place is is another discussion. Uh, But while I'm there, all I care about is those Americans getting home safe. So, uh, so you go out there and you just provide that kind of security blanket, that, that overwatch. Uh, but I remember the first time um, I went to a troops in contact. Uh, so that's where um, basically you're going to a gunfight. You know, mm. this is the real deal. So mm. um, I just remember I'm on, I'm, I'm, when you're brand new, you're still under close supervision. So even though you're flying your own jet, you're flying as the wingman for your flight lead who has authority over what you do. And sorry, are you the only person in your jet or is there like another? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're the only person because usually me again, Top Gun. Yeah. I'm like, oh, Top Gun, you have goose in the back, right? Yeah, we so got no just goose. <laughs> yeah, single C. It's it's funny within the community because we have like the, the Strike Eagle, the F-15E, we always we talk about how, um, you know, it's like good friendly banter, but we see like, yeah. if you're not good enough to do it all by yourself, then you need a backseater. <laughs> but thankfully we're good enough. We don't need that. But yeah, so you're by yourself. But what's amazing is, um, is how closely you are monitored and, um, and controlled by your flight lead. So you're flying. Sorry, can, in you, formation. can you go over that again? I think you cut out a little bit from the internet. So, so can you go go from the beginning on that again? Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. Um, so what you find out is, um, as a wingman, so as a new guy, mm. you are closely monitored and controlled by your experienced flight lead. So, so you're not an inexperienced guy just going to this situation for the first time by yourself. You're always with somebody else hmm. uh, unless there's some sort of maintenance issue or something happens where you're in this weird situation. But the vast majority of the time you're by yourself. Hmm. And I just remember like we we hear the click on the, you know, hear the radio key up. You hear the gunfire. You hear the uh, kind of anguish in the young man's voice hmm. and he needs help. And I remember like the, the first time I heard that my whole world just went to like tunnel vision. Hmm. I'm like, Oh shit. Like this is getting real. And then I remember immediately like snapping out of it and going, Oh, I know what to do. Like <laughs> I've been trained for this. We've rehearsed this a million times. Okay. So um, what are my responsibilities if we have a troops in contact as the wingman and this is something that we practice and brief okay i need to provide you know viz like visual lookout for my flight lead calm if i see anything additional firepower if needed so you just immediately snap back to what you've been trained to do and you start just prioritize and execute all the required tasks to to get the job done so for me you know it was like that tunnel vision that kind of accelerated heart rate that physiological mm. response to go mm. okay it all comes back down and that's like I, i'm prepared for this i know what to do so mm. off we go and what was uh what was it like deploying arms for the first time yeah that's it's um 
it's crazy, man. Like, it, like yeah. thinking about it, it seems like a dream. Like, it's, it's yeah. like, is that real? Like, like a movie a little bit. Yeah, yeah. it's intense. You're just like, yeah. you know, you've trained for it at home station. And then now, like, you might find yourself in that situation where the, um, to, you know, save those friendly lives, you have to employ ordinance and you do exactly as you're trained to do. And it's like, it, it kind of, to be honest, it taps into this, um, this kind of primal, like uh, something that I think resides within all of us that is completely repressed in modern convenient so- society. But <laughs> like when, when you first realize people are trying to kill you, like, and your friends, it's, I, I just remember being mad. Like, I'm like, mm. I'm like, Oh my, like these people want me dead. You know, <laughs> like, mm. uh, you know, you're just going, you, you physically get mad. And then now you're, uh, now you're in a fight and, you have this uh, this capability, this extension of your own will to just bring mm. massive amount of, amounts of hurt to the enemy, and yeah. and then you do it, and then boom, the dust settles, the guns go quiet, and everyone's like, "Oh, thank God! Like we can we can maneuver, we can get out of here, you know? We mm. can do what we need to do, accomplish our mission." Can you explain what the A10 is? Uh, because when I think about military airplanes or aircraft i'm thinking of like big bombers or like the top gun planes you know like the yeah super sleek like whatever it is what what exactly like can you explain what the a10 is is it a is it the warthog yeah absolutely okay Okay. so the yeah the warthog so uh so the a10 it basically came shortly after vietnam and Mm -hmm. so the u.s military coming out of vietnam looked at uh, what had happened, and they said we need a dedicated close air support and CSAR, which is like mm-hmm. combat search and rescue. We need a purpose-built airplane to support those guys on the ground. And if somebody finds themselves like surviving behind enemy lines, if you will, you know, like that that sort of scenario, uh, you need an airplane that can provide cover for the helicopters. Uh, neutralize threats and go pick up those downed uh, air crew members. Hmm. So the A-10 was purpose built for that role. Uh, so what does that look like? You know, it's, it's slower than like say the top gun aircraft, the F-18 or the F-15. Um, it's more maneuverable. It has a ton of ordnance, you know, so you, we carry uh, almost 1200 rounds of 30 millimeter. Sorry. You keep on saying ordnance. What are ordnance? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, ordnance would just be um, uh, something to describe all of the different weapons that you can deliver gotcha. from the platform. For for any military vets that are listening <laughs> to this right now, I'm a complete ignoramus. So ignoramus, I don't even know how to say the word. But but again, don't don't lame base me uh, for not knowing these terms. No, uh, it's it's good, man. Civilian. I need that. I need yeah. that uh, that feedback so I can describe it to where <laughs> yeah. the average person understands. You know, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, but yeah. So, so, okay. so yeah. it's just designed for that. It's purpose built for that role. So it's like, hey, you're gonna get shot because you're low to the ground and you're slow. So they like wrap the entire cockpit with a ti- they call it the titanium bathtub. So mm. like, if you get shot, the cockpit from below. Uh, most likely it's going to get stopped by this titanium armor is where, mm. you know, they took all these lessons learned from Vietnam and the A1 and, yeah. and you know, the, the OV-10 where they're like, we're getting taken out with 
um, you know, automatic weapons and getting serious, serious damage, we needed to be able to absorb that damage and get the aircraft home safe. And so that's, mm. that's what the A-10 was built for. Gotcha. What was, uh, and, and I'm just assuming right now that, you know, when you deploy weapons, you're harming the baddies, obviously. What was your feelings like when, let's just say, like you you harmed the baddies? You know that this you probably took life at that moment. Did that ever like kind of like hit you a little bit? You're like, holy shit! Like I just took out like twenty guys or ten guys or whatever it is. Yeah, I would say in the t- so in the moment, uh, it like it taps into this like this this primal like feeling uh within all of us you know Mm. where you're just like like f them it's it's my guys or it's Mm. them and you're gonna you're gonna get it like i i don't like like it is um it is just this uh this visceral response Mm. and when you're successful it's like elation you know which which thankfully i uh, was a hundred percent sex successful on all the ordnance I dropped. So I hit my intended target, you know? So, uh, so, uh, mean, meaning I never hit an unintended target, which yeah. is the biggest concern when you're delivering weapons in close proximity to friendlies. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's myriad of incidents throughout, you know, aviation history where you actually, that's like the worst case scenario would be you yeah. kill Americans. And so, mm-hmm. so in that moment, it's, it's pure elation, you know? Um, but then, you know, this is kind of fast forward to like a deeper conversation about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what what this means for your psyche. You know, you mm-hmm. um, fast forward to like the last few years and you start uh, like zooming out and looking at like, you know, after you look at like the disastrous withdrawal, you look at uh, this this 20 years of like repeated just you know, failure, it seems like a giant money grab. in in a lot of ways, you're like, why were we even there beyond like, you know, the initial onslaught and maybe like, especially after uh, we got Bin Laden, like, why are, why are we still there? You know, so I would say in the moment, it's pure elation and excitement. And then in retrospect, you start Mm. looking at it going like, um, go, you just start thinking about it on a deeper level saying like, okay, maybe like, uh, you know, America isn't exactly what I believed it was in uh, growing up as a, you know, small town patriotic American. And maybe yeah. uh, we'd be better off if we were never there in the first place kind of yeah. thing. So, yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, you, you really reflect on it um, the further away you get from it. And uh, I wouldn't take back anything uh, that I did, because as long as Americans were there in harm's mm-hmm. way, um, I will do you know, what I had to do to protect my brothers. Um, and then, you know, the question would be going forward, uh, why even get involved in a lot of these, um, these stupid regime change wars, you know? So let me ask you now, it's like, uh, you have the hindsight right now, you're, you have the space, uh, someone comes up to you, they want to be like, Hey, Dale, I want to join the U S air force. I want to do exactly what you did. And they're doing it because, you know, they, they feel like they're pretty much in this exact same spot. They have like zero purpose, right? But knowing what you know right now, what exactly would you say to, to that person? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And it's something I've, I've 
thought about a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and as I uh, put myself out there more on, on X, you get yeah. more of those questions and stuff sure. and you get a lot of young guys. And uh, it's kind of funny. I, I've decided um, that uh, it, it, my answer is kind of a non-answer. I've decided I'm not going to give a recommendation. Mm-hmm. So what, what I will do is I will tell them about my experience I will tell them uh, what I believe about the current state of affairs. Uh, I'll tell them about the opportunities, the drawbacks, and what do you uh, feel about the current state of affairs? I'd love to hear what you think of like the current <laughs> state of affairs is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like um, there just there seems to be an element, um, uh, you know, a very powerful element within uh, the the western world if you will the u.s government um that feels and i you know depends on how cynical you want to get if they maybe they uh, what their motivations are but they want to get involved with every country you know any hot spot whatever thing flares up they think that we can go in and and make a difference Mm. a positive difference maybe um you know, I, I think people overestimate what the U.S. military is capable of accomplishing in the U.S. government in general. So say you have this terrible situation uh, overseas and, it, uh, you know, maybe it shocks and horrifies everybody and they're like, just go do something, you know. Well, what if like what we go do makes things worse? Mm-hmm. Like maybe we shouldn't go do something. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that it's just, it's kind of a um, really tough to articulate, but it's like you might, you know, find yourself in a conflict overseas that you don't necessarily agree with or, or, or think we should be involved with. And so before you, you know, raise your right hand and take that oath, you just have to understand that it's not up to you what we get involved with. So um, if you're willing to accept that, and you understand that, then um, that's your your choice to make. Yeah, there seems to be a growing sense of distrust uh, with the military, with the U.S. military specifically. Um, less people are enlisting. Uh, the people who are enlisting, they're pretty much like the people who shouldn't be enlisting, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> they're doing yeah. it because they have to. Uh, and and what do you make of that? Uh, you know, because obviously you look back at Vietnam and you look back at Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, you know, obviously, uh, when you look back on those situations, you're, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you're like, well, you you probably shouldn't have went there in the first place. So what do you make of like the distrust of the U S government right now and uh, the military? And how do you think it's going to affect, uh, North America moving forwards? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's well earned. You know, I, one of the main reasons for the recruiting crisis is a bunch of veterans like like me and and uh, my friends, and then extrapolate that across the entire veteran community are telling their kids like, absolutely, do not serve, mm-hmm. uh, because you know it, it's kind of like over the last few years, it's kind of been a a, a mask off type situation, so. For me personally, like why we were engaged in the tactical fight, if you will, uh, it's easy to kind of forget about some of these bigger picture questions. Mm -hmm. But you look at like, you know, all the lies that got us into Iraq, 
You look at kind of the lies throughout the entire war in Afghanistan that are completely detailed and public knowledge now uh, through a book called like the Afghanistan Papers, which lays out like 20 years of uh, uh, just like purposeful mistruths about mm. what was happening on the ground. And then, I, mm. you know, I, I remember like being there and hearing this report like seeing the capability of the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police, like seeing it with my own eyes, flying these missions, understanding um, just the the lack of capability that they had and thinking they're never going to get there. Like mm. it's just, it's you could have a thousand years and it's not going to change anything with what we're doing. Mm. And then you hear kind of the public testimony from the top brass and you realize it's just, it's kind of like they're like politicians in uniform. They're saying what the system, what the public, what everybody wants them to hear. And none, none of it's true. And mm-hmm. so after the disastrous withdrawal, you know, and, and which left, you know, 13 Marines dead, uh, strategically you're going, okay, why, you know, didn't they withdraw out of Bagram, more defensible air, you know, airfield, all these things. And you're going like, Oh, it's because um, I won't say that they don't care, but they're like, but like none. Of, there's no accountability. There's no. Mm-hmm. Um, well, would you say there's more accountability now that social media is is what it is right now, and X is what it is, and there's like there's accountability more, from yeah. like the bottom up. Like there's yeah. people calling it out. It's obvious. Like there, there's no hiding it, uh, but there's no accountability from the top down. You know, there's no like vast. Um, holding to account to all of these people who purposely told mistruths and are now sitting on like boards at Raytheon. Dale, if you're hearing this right now, the U S government just, uh, just started blocking your, your audio for this, uh, (laughs) for this interview. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's like, like as soon as we, uh, um, got on this, we just got this giant weather front. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Storm clouds overhead. Uh, yeah, okay. it's just a lack of lack of accountability, and yeah. um, uh, and and you see that with your own eyes. It, it can't be denied. And you look at it, and you look at our actions. A lot of our actions overseas, and a lot of people are telling their kids, like, "Do not join, do mm-hmm. not serve." And so that that just is, you know, the the vast majority of recruits come from veterans, like the kids of veterans, and they're not yeah. they're not joining, and so. Yeah. Until I think accountability is restored and until we stop being involved in, in things that have no benefit to the American people, um, I think that the recruiting crisis is going to get worse. It, I think it's unfortunate because there are some true patriots that are out there that are willing to defend America to, to their bone, except they're not joining the military. <laughs> they're they're actually yeah. in America storing up their <laughs> stocking up guns <laughs> and, and, and trying to protect from a civil war. But you know, let's let's actually go into what you have evolved into. So, you remind me of uh, of the gardener who was once a samurai, um, <laughs> because you have gotten into cattle ranching. You have your own ranch right now. We've talked a little bit on messages on what you want to turn that into, which I'm really excited about. So, what made you want to evolve from being a pilot to now uh, being a cattle rancher and homeschooling uh, your children? 
You know, so like as you get further along in your career in the Air Force, so I was at the end, I was a lieutenant colonel, a squadron commander, and the amount of flying you do becomes way, way less. You know, you're not flying nearly as much. And it's, it's, you're doing a lot of like office managerial tasks (laughs) and which I did not enjoy. So as I got to the end of that, um, kind of the natural course would be either to like go to the airlines or go to, uh, corporate America, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, I started looking at that and it was just kind of expected. That's what I would do. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, I probably put that expectation on myself and I started, um, just really considering, um, like, what do I want to do with my life? Not like, not like how much money do I want to, uh, save up or what do I want to have? Like, what do I want my lifestyle to actually, actually look like? I think, a a a lot of us have become, um, so detached from the real world that you, you almost, um, forget what it's like to, to, you know, be a part of the natural world unless you're very deliberate about it. And so, you know, I grew up, like I said, my dad was a horse trainer and uh, a logger and all these different things. And I grew up, you know, I worked on dairy farms. I worked outside uh, constantly in the woods as I kind of like approached the end of my air force career and started thinking about what I want to do. I'm like, to me, like just, you know, just kill me now if I have to sit in a fluorescent, you know, little <laughs> office and live in a city. And um, I feel like you're making fun of my office right now. <laughs> <laughs> no way, man. Dude, uh, sidebar, like, like you, in fact, you yourself inspired me in a lot of ways. Like Thanks. when, when, when COVID hit mm. and uh, I see, I see Dan go uh, <laughs> and he has like 6,000 followers on Twitter and, mm. um, and I, I started kind of just learning about your story and mm-hmm. how you were, uh, you know, a business owner. And then mm-hmm. you decided to make that transition and you took your family to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. And now, like, there's full madness in America. People locked in their houses and, you know, six-year-olds forced to wear mask, masks and all that. And you're down there surfing in Costa Rica. <laughs> and I, 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 that literally made me reflect, like, what do I want my life to look like? Mm-hmm. And uh, it certainly isn't. Uh, being plugged into the matrix, you know, so, yeah. Um, so I found this, you know, it's, it, I found this ranch in uh, my hometown. So, you know, I grew up like two, well, like I said, I moved around a bunch, but kind of where I finished high schools and where my parents are is like two miles from here. My wife grew up like three miles from here. Yeah. It's kind of like a, it's like a, um, a small homestead. It's like 58 acres. So it's not huge, but you know, anyhow, so, so what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm living I mean, in Canada right now. Like having an acre is uh, is is like the the thing, but for 58 yeah. acres seems like a lot. Yeah, it, it, does it seem feels like, like a lot to manage. Yeah. But um, but you know, some people you say a ranch, and some people think like you know, yeah. two thousand acres. It's, <laughs> but anyhow, so yeah, uh, so I just started looking at like what what is the life that I want to live and um and. Uh, do I want to go further down this path? Do I want to, a lot of guys like go work for the defense industry. They work at a think tank that's funded by the defense industry. And you're, you're basically like paid to regurgitate the opinions of like 
you know, weapons manufacturers, you kind of mm. lend your credibility to whatever they want to have happen and you get mm-hmm. paid for it. I'm like, it's just not how I want to live. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to focus on my family. I want to focus on my land, uh, myself, um, uh, my community, uh, you know, things, things that are like, um, things that are actually important to me, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so we found this property in 2020 and, um, it was, it was funny. Um, it was like when COVID hit, I don't know if you remember, think back, but the kind of early in COVID, like all, like everything like froze in place mm-hmm. and there was not a lot of real estate transactions going on. Yeah. And I feel like we, we, we picked this place up at like the perfect time. Cause, uh, we got it for a really good price. Yeah. And now it's like, oh my gosh, like I, like the way things have gone, uh, it's like, I could never buy this place now. So anyhow, we just picked this place up and, um, we just, you know, one of the, it's like, you look, think about it in terms of controlling your inputs, controlling your health, providing an environment for your kids. And it's like, um, you know, the best way to do that is to raise your own food and to, um, uh, you know, understand exactly what goes in to that beef that I'm eating and feeding my family. Like, hey, it's, this hasn't been pumped full of antibiotics and um, fed like glyphosate mm-hmm. covered corn and this and that, you know. So you're just you're you're able to control uh, your health to a degree that uh, you can't even get if you, you know, shop at like natural grocers or, or Whole Foods or anything else like that. So to me, it's just, you know, I see where my water comes from. It's a mountain spring. It runs right by my house. We capture it, you know, pump it into the house. It tastes delicious. We've had it tested. It's really good. Um, and uh, creating that environment for your kids too, you know? So it's like you learn responsibility uh, real quick out here. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, if I don't, you know, the kids don't make sure the chickens have water and they have everything they need, they'll die. You know, like if we don't make sure the cattle have uh, what they need, you know, they'll, they won't die. They'll probably just break out and run away. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so, I mean, you, you're, you're just forced to live in harmony with your natural environment. And it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's like, I don't want to glamorize it because it's a tremendous amount of hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you, if you like to work hard, uh, you, you know, you find purpose and, you know, building those fences, repairing fences, clearing land, planting grass, Mm. looking at the weather, like, oh man, it's like a little too cold for grass. There's not enough sun. Like you're Mm. just, you're just connected to your, your environment. Like, um, it it feels like how humans are supposed to live. Is this what you're obsessed about now? Like, like for, you know, back then you were obsessed about becoming a pilot. What would you say is something that you obsess about at this very moment? Yeah, it's it's all about working the land. So mm. it's it's funny, like um, like I'll, now I sit there, like I've had to do uh, quite a bit of like arborist work because in that. the Pacific yeah. Northwest, there's tons mm. of trees, and I um, and they if if not properly managed, you have wildfire risk. You have mm-hmm. 
it just, you know, you, you won't get a good amount of sun. So you have to do thinning to make a, a healthy forest. We've got a good amount of timberland here. And so um, just like just creating this this amazing ecosystem around me. And it's mm. it's awesome. The skill sets required to do that. Like it's funny um, at the end of the night, like recently I'll I'll come in, we'll get the kids to bed and like my wife and I will talk and, and um, I'll just be sitting there working on different knots and stuff, <laughs> different like rope knots so I can rig trees. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, so all these skill sets are like, okay, well, this tree here, it's leaning towards the house or towards the shop. And so I can't just go drop it because it's going to crush my house. So, mm-hmm. okay, well, how do I, um, how do I make sure that that goes the opposite direction? So there's this just whole world of skills that like my dad, my grandpa, like I'm sure all of my forefathers, you know, who came out to the Pacific Northwest like years ago, they all knew how to do all of this stuff. And it's just kind of been forgotten in this this modern, like hyper technical, uh, narrow skill set world. And um, I'm just finding like great joy and learning i guess relearning uh these these skills if you will it's amazing how everything comes full circle as well it's like uh you go off you're traveling a bunch of different places you become a pilot you go off to many many different places that you would never even imagine and then you go back and you're like okay well home is you know where where it once was and i'm gonna do like what my dad did and become a cattle rancher, a logger, and you're basically all those things in like one right now. Mm-hmm. Like, how does it feel to kind of like go back into your roots uh, from where you were? Oh, man, it feels it feels wonderful. Like when I left here, um, I never knew like what we had, if you mm-hmm. will. Like sometimes you got to leave to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a while, I never intended to come back. You know, it was like... Um, uh, I just expected to have kind of a normal, normal career. You know, it's a small town. It's, it's pretty far from uh, uh, the interstate. So it's kind of out of the way, a little coastal town, you know? So, uh, you know, I found, I, I just assumed I would do other things, you know, like, 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 like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that I'm back, I see, uh, I just, I see that we're in one of the most amazing places that, that God ever created. I mean, it, it's comparable to New Zealand, you know, the shores of Ireland, Scotland. It's just these dramatic coastlines, huge timber all around us, beautiful pastures. It's all like undulating terrain. And um, like, I, I just, I thank God, like every day I get to live here. I mean, I wake up, I go take care of all the animals. I check the weather, I check the swell, check the wind direction. <laughs> Where like where's the surf today? I've like reconnected with like three or four buddies from high school, and um, we we've got kids similar ages. Hmm. We hang out, we surf, we we work. You know, if I need an extra hand, uh, they'll come over. So it's just it, it, like it feels like a true uh, true blessing, and it's like uh, you know, and when you find. Uh, I don't know. When you find happiness, you're always going like mm. looking around the corner. You're like, okay, like what's what's going to be my next challenge? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what's going to be the next obstacle? Uh, you yeah. know, because uh, but I'm just trying to kind of revel in it and enjoy it and um, yeah. spend this time again, just connecting to those around me. It feels like you're you're within the 
the challenge itself right now. Uh, just just keeping up with everything that you have to keep up with. Uh, I've I've definitely dude. I first of all like this is the first time that we've been interacting. Like uh, you know we've been we've been talking a lot on Twitter. Uh, we've been interacting back and forth. I love uh, the energy that you're bringing in there, and we've literally known each other since we kind of like started on that that platform. Uh, and then it's really cool to see your message uh, getting out there to a lot of people, uh, which is which is kind of incredible. I, I don't know, like, how do you feel about having like a freaking Twitter following of like over a hundred k people like listening to your voice and, and wanting to hear the things that you have to say? Dude, it's it's really bizarre. It's so strange. <laughs> like it's hard to like uh you kind of have to like I don't know how you've managed it, you know, at that scale, but you kind of have to like compartmentalize it from your life, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. it's yeah. like it, it it's uh it can, you know, I think it's one of those things that really depends on how you use it, you know? And sometimes I feel the dark side pulling me towards <laughs> negativity. For sure. And I have to like, I have to be like, I'll consciously think about it and I'll be like, okay, like, what do I want? What message do I want to put out into the world? People, mm. you know, people listen, you, you uh, impact what people are thinking about, like mm-hmm. the way they view things. And uh, what, if you have a, a, any platform at all, you have to think about, kind of be deliberate about what you want to do with it, I suppose. Yeah. And yeah. that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, I've never, you know, I don't, my business is just serving uh, my local community, you know, so I've, I've processed some, some beef steers and I, you know, I'm just like selling it to my neighbors and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, and then this other little siloed area of Twitter is just bizarre, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. like, you'll be like, Oh my gosh, like you're getting millions of impressions and you're just, yeah. just going, how do you like even the, the human mind isn't even designed to contemplate that scale, I think. So yeah. I don't know that I, I I really have figured that out yet. Yeah, it's like one thing where it's like you you take it seriously because it is a huge responsibility. I mean, speaking to that many people, the amount of impressions that you get, the amount of people that see your tweets, that see your thoughts, it's a massive responsibility. And yet at the same time, you almost have to like forget about it to a sense for you to be able to speak whatever truth that you have. Um, I know that uh, you definitely want to put out like a really good energy out there. But one of the things that I get from reading your tweets is it's just a sense of realism. Uh, You don't really sugarcoat things. You don't really hold things back. You say things as they are, which is like what people need to hear at this very moment. So one of the things I just want to say about you is, you know, just, Thank you. Um, you're you're coming to Twitter, coming to X uh, with with a totally different perspective, and you're speaking your truth. And you're and a lot of people are are obviously listening to you. So so it is well deserved. Um, now, if you were to give some advice to Dale, uh, where are you, what what what's your age right now? Were you like forties right now? Uh, yeah, I'm forty four. Okay, I'm four. I just turned forty four. Yeah. Uh, if you were to give the advice to 24 year old day Dale right now, uh, if you were able to say anything to him and say whatever you could, like what exactly, what advice would you give him at this very moment in this very time that we're in right now? Yeah, I would probably tell my younger self just to, um, just to relax a little bit, you know, it's all going to work out. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, I think I put 
you know, that the career field I chose is uh, very high intensity and a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. And I think younger me actually made it harder on myself uh, by um, worrying about things that I couldn't control, if you will. So, uh, yeah, I just say, hey, like I just tell younger me that it's gonna, it's, it's all going to work out. You'll be OK. <laughs> I love that advice. Uh, and I need that advice. 44-year-old Dan actually needs that advice right now. Uh, could be Sometimes you just, actually most times, you just got to let go and, and let God do its thing kind of thing. Uh, as long as you're putting in the work. Yeah. So Dale, uh, dude, first of all, very nice. It, it's it's just awesome to meet you and to to meet you like this. Uh, hopefully I'll be coming down to, uh, you know, Port or I don't know, it's not Portland, thank God, but it's like Oregon. I want to catch some breaks with you. Uh, the piddly widdly ones, like four, three feet, usually, yeah. like probably around it's there. Fun, if got, man. Yeah, we got those going on. And Dude, you guys um, are welcome anytime. Thanks, man. Like, like, okay, so tell me what the dream is for the ranch because I, I remember you told me this before, and I just want to know. I, I want you to put it out there. What exactly is the dream for the ranch? Like you said, you want to get people out there, do some like, learn how to like yeah. you know raise cattle and shoot guns and surf waves. <laughs> like, what do you want to do? Like, what what exactly do you want to do with it? Dude, it's funny. I I do not know. And like something I'm I'm working on is just being okay with that, you know. Yeah. So I'm 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 kind of chunking it up into phases. Uh, like you know, one of the reasons why um, I really have been not wanting to go on podcasts up until now and yeah. and do any long form interviews is I was still trying to put my experience in in context, you know. Mm. And so what I'm trying to do now is just. Uh, working kind of like shorter blocks, you know, like, um, what do I want to do? What are my goals for today? What do I want to do next week? And so the phase I'm in right now with the property is, um, just turning it into like one of the most beautiful spaces in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, getting all the underbrush cleared out, arboring the trees, making the pasture, just rolling grass Hills with, uh, uh, good fencing. So my cows stop getting out things like that. So yeah, I'm just, I'm really focused on the short term. Uh, and I believe that if I, uh, continue to do the work and, and, uh, you know, honor, uh, honor the work, do the work, um, provide a good product to my customers with the, uh, grass fed grass finished beef. I, I, I think the future will re- reveal itself, uh, yeah. as time goes on. 100%. I got to get some of that beef myself. Uh, look, oh, yeah. I definitely got to get some of that. Fatten those cows up as much as possible. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, so, Dale, uh, brother, thank you so much for, for making this the first podcast interview that you have done. Uh, first of many, I would actually say. So, if people want to, uh, if you want people to access you to to kind of like hear your thoughts, like where exactly would you uh, send them to? Yeah, probably just go to X for now, uh, Dale Stark A10, and uh, that's that's where I you know put out most of my random uh, thoughts out there, kind of what I'm doing, and uh, going forward, you know, we'll we'll see how it expands from there. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, dude, again, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you. And yes, uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, I've actually had so much fun uh, learning about all the pilot stuff and war and all the stuff that a civilian usually doesn't get uh, access to. So I really appreciate it. And thank you for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Dude, great talking with you. Appreciate you, Dan.
Thank you again for listening to The Dan Go Show. We have some amazing episodes coming your way, so make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you're already subscribed and today's episode hit home for you, please share this episode with someone that you know who'd benefit from listening. Take care and see you every week on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you.